Truths unchanged from the dawn of time is what we're here for today. Not my ideas, not yours, God's. That's what we're after. Let's begin with our scripture reading today, which comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, which reads, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then our passage this morning, down in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, help us to understand these truths that are unchanged from the dawn of time. For you are a God who does not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we praise you for that. For you are a God who does not change and does not need to change, for you are perfectly holy and righteous in every way. We are not God. We fall desperately short of the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of God. So help us this morning to hold up your glorious standard of holiness and to understand how we might attain it through the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. After years of escalating personal and political tensions, their feud had reached its boiling point. And so, on July 11th, 1804, these two men who were at odds with one another met to settle their differences once and for all. Who were these men? Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Hamilton, see, he was the former Secretary of Defense, and Burr was actually actively serving as the Vice President of the United States under Thomas Jefferson at the time. And now, how had their feud began? This might be a shock to you, but it was over politics. Which is weird, right? And so Hamilton didn't like Burr and his politics, and so what he did was he fiercely campaigned against him at a time when he had been running for the governor of New York. And so seeking to restore his damaged reputation, Burr challenged Hamilton to 
what was called back then an affair of honor, what we, what we might call today a duel. And so the two enemies met at the dueling grounds near Weehawken, New Jersey, which interestingly enough happens to be the very same place where Hamilton's son had died years before over defending his father's honor. And so the men met there, anger in their eyes, pace turned, faced each other, paced off, and then drew their pistols and fired. Hamilton's shot missed, but Burrs hit him promptly in the stomach, leading to Hamilton's death in the very same place and manner as his son's. And why? Because politics are that serious? Because of political differences? No. Because of the deadly attitudes that were in both of these men's hearts. That's what it was. The attitude of their heart was deadly. And we saw this when we looked at Matthew 5, right? Weeks back. Where Jesus says, you have heard thou shalt not murder. I tell you, if you hate somebody, you have already, you have murder in your heart. And so these men clearly had that. They had an attitude of vengeance. A deadly attitude of vengeance that said, if I am wrong, I will repay tenfold in order to restore my honor, my dignity, and my pride. It's that important to us. That's the default state of the human heart. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us what he thinks of this kind of attitude. And what he tells us is that it's not the attitude of his kingdom, it's the attitude of Satan's kingdom. It's the attitude not of heaven, but of hell's. For it is an attitude that says, if somebody slaps my right cheek, I'm going to backslap them with my left. If someone sues you and takes your tunic, I'm going to fight back instead of giving them my cloak as well. If somebody forces me to go two mile, one mile, I'm going to resist. I don't want to listen to the government in any way, shape, or form. But no, Jesus says, go too. And if someone begs from you, hold back. Don't give because all of those material things, you need those. Why? To serve yourself. And Jesus says, no, that is not the attitude of the kingdom. As I said when we began this morning, this passage is one of the hardest ones I've ever had to study. Uh, it's a real beat, beat you up kind of passage. Um, it's brutal. And the question is, is Jesus serious? Is, G, is, is, this, is this as serious as it sounds? Well, yes, it is. In fact, it's deadly serious. For as we know, as Jesus said, if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must be this way. It must exceed even the most super-religious out there, or we're not going to make it. And so if we have to have a righteousness that exceeds even the most righteous among us, that means that this attitude that Christ is describing this passage has to be in our hearts. Now, here's the question, though. How can we have that attitude permeate our hearts? That's a really good question, and it's actually the one we're looking at this morning. So here we go. To have the attitude of Christ's kingdom, we must understand three things. The letter of the law, the heart of the law, and the power needed to live the law. Let's look at that first one. As you are well aware of by now, Jesus isn't fixing or replacing Old Testament law. He's not doing that. As we read in our scripture reading, not one part of it will pass away. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it up, right? 
And so what Jesus is doing all throughout this passage, he says, you've heard this, but I tell you this, he's fixing their wrong understanding of God's law. He's fixing their warp and twisted perversion of it. And so the religious leaders, they absolutely messed this thing up. They didn't understand it rightly. And just as they botched what God's law said on murder, they also botched it on adultery, divorce, and oaths, as we saw last week. They also botched it here, too, on what the law had to say about retaliation. And see, here's how this worked. In Exodus 21, 24, which is what Jesus is referencing here, it describes how justice for wrongdoings was to be done. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. And that reveals God's righteous standard, his take on justice. Now think about what we discussed last Sunday on this matter. Why did God need to implement this law at all in the first place? What was the point of it? The point of it was the same thing we saw last week when it came to oaths, right? It was meant to restrain the self-focused attitude that was within their hearts. See, the human heart doesn't just desire, it doesn't desire justice. It desires vengeance, retribution. And instead of being satisfied with justice and we wanting that retribution, we say, you took my eye, now I'm going to take both of yours payback time. That's the way our hearts naturally think. You killed my cow, I'm going to burn your farm down. Teach you to ever mess with me again. Or you insulted my reputation and ruined my political run for office, so I'm going to kill you with a pistol in a duel. That's the nature of the human heart. And if you think that's not the natural bent of your heart, then I'm going to be blunt here, you're extremely deluded because it absolutely is. Now, why are we that way? Well, you got to slow down because we're going to get there in a few minutes, but i got to finish explaining what the letter of the law was here. The point of the law was to restrict the human impulse to get people back twice as hard, to teach them a lesson. That was the point. See, back in Moses' day, this is what was happening. They were going around scorched earth on anybody who had wronged them. Right? It wasn't just at all. It wasn't the right response according to God's holy and righteous standard. It was retribution. It was vengeance. Right? And the problem was, these people weren't after justice. They wanted to get back at those who had wronged them because they valued themselves and saw themselves as, oh, how dare you do that to me? I will show you why you ought not to do that. And so what did the Pharisees do then with God's good law? They perverted it in two major ways. How? One, they used it in order to justify their vigilante Batmanism. Ism. I can't even make that into a word. Making up words, and it's not even working. They used it to try and be Batman, and they used it to try and be Dirty Harry. That's an old, we'll get there. But the law wasn't meant for either one of those things. It wasn't given so individuals would know the rules of engagement so they could put on their caped crusade and go around and pound some criminals who had it coming. That wasn't the point of the law. Not at all. Nor was it given to justify the you feel lucky punk blast them away dirty hairy stuff back you know what was that seventies eighties that's way before my time, and if you don't know who Batman or dirty either who Batman or dirty Harry is I can't help you because every age group should be able to identify with at least one of those two. So, but the point is eye for eye, tooth for tooth wasn't meant for personal use. It wasn't meant for me to come and get you back to you you know you knock this out I'm taking it from you buddy. No, it was meant for the governmental use. And so the Pharisees got that wrong. They took it to the personal level, and they started inflicting vengeance on one another. 
And secondly, where they got this wrong, is they began to find enjoyment and satisfaction in taking someone's eye or tooth, which completely misses the heart of the law, as Jesus points out. Like, you know what the Romans said about the, Israel, about the Jewish people when they'd occupied them? They said, if there's, we've found no other people on this planet who hate humanity with such passion. Because the Jews saw, I mean, they hated the Roman occupation. They hated the Gentiles largely. They saw them as Gentile dogs. And so they even had a saying where it was, the Pharisees would put all these extra laws in. They said, if you saw a Gentile drowning and didn't save them, that was righteous. And they used this passage to justify this kind of thinking. There's some other ones, but we don't have time for that. But you get the idea. They saw an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth as this good thing that we should just relish in and enjoy inflicting upon one another. And that's not what the point of it was at all. It completely misses the heart of the law, which is what Jesus' teaching is centered on, which leads us to our second point. To have the attitude of Christ's kingdom, we must understand the letter of the law, but also the heart of the law. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, this is verse 38, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Anybody here ever heard of the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy? Any hands? Anybody? A couple nods? Okay. Well, here's what he did with these verses. He looked at them and he concluded that Jesus was teaching the absolute doctrine of pacifism and nonviolence. Is that what Jesus is saying here? All forms of pacifism, governmental, personal, is that what he's after here? My goodness, no. Not, not at all. Not even a little bit, right? And there's a few reasons for why Tolstoy got this very, very wrong. First off, in the Sermon on the Mount, let me ask you, is that a code of ethics? I'll ask it in a different way. Is it the Ten Commandments 2.0? No, it's not. Not at all. Absolutely not. What is it then? It's a description, right, of the character attitudes of kingdom citizens. Right? They're descriptions of what they are like. Not a new law to set up, right? It's not, it's not the Ten Commandments 2.0, where, or even a way of setting up a peaceful society, as some people have tried to turn it into, because that's not going to work, because you need a new heart to do this stuff. But if we make the mistake of seeing what Jesus is teaching here as an absolute law, Ten Commandments 2.0, what's going to happen is we are going to make the same exact mistake that the Pharisees made, which was what? They turned it into a new letter of the law. Like They tried to follow the letter of the law without the heart of the law. And as you know, by now, Jesus was all about both of those things. He wasn't adding a new Ten Commandments. He was explaining what they were really meant to entail. Yes, God wants obedience, but only obedience that stems from heart change. The human heart wants to mechanically obey God's list of do's and don'ts, but God isn't after that. He's after, yes, obedience, but he wants your heart. He wants you to do the right thing for the right reason, not just do the right thing. And what Tolstoy did was he turned Jesus' teachings here into another set of laws. Because, hey, after all, Jesus said, resist not evil, don't do it. It says it right here in my Bible, you know, that kind of talk. But Tolstoy then went on to say, because we are not to resist evil, 
we need to abolish the police since they resist evil, and we shouldn't have that. We need to get rid of the military since they try to resist evil, and we shouldn't have that. We don't need soldiers, magistrates, judges, and law courts. What he really was kind of after was anarchism. But that wasn't at all what Jesus was getting after. Here's why. When Jesus said to turn the other cheek, this wasn't a new law. It was a principle, right? And we know that because even when Jesus was on trial and he got slapped, did he turn the other one and say, oh, now get me here too? No, he didn't. What did he do? He resisted their evil by pointing out their evil. He pointed out that what they did was illegal. They shouldn't, they couldn't, they shouldn't have been doing it. And why? Because it was unjust. And so Jesus pointed out that injustice. He didn't turn and say, nail me here now. No. And so the question is, why did Jesus do that? Is he breaking his own law here? Or his own teaching here? Not at all. He did that in that situation because that was the right thing to do. And therefore, Christians, we have to work these things out as well. It's not a contradiction because Christ was advocating a heart attitude, not a legalistic formula that need to be followed. It's a major difference. And if you mix those two things up, this passage is (laughs) good luck. It's not going to work out well for you. Another thing, notice Jesus doesn't say, when someone punches you on the cheek, Turn the other one and be like, all right, hit me here too. He doesn't use the term punch, does he? What does he use? Slap. And that's significant, right? Here's why. Here's what he's getting at. To slap someone, especially in that culture, was a sign of deep disrespect. It meant that they were so below you that you wouldn't punch them. They weren't worthy of that. No, you'd, you'd slap them, right? It's very demeaning. And so Jesus' point here is extremely simple. If somebody demeans your honor, it shouldn't result in a proverbial duel. It shouldn't result in you getting all bent out of shape over it. No, instead, what should it result in? An attitude of turning the other cheek. You disrespect me. All right, you know what? That's fine. I'm not going to freak out here and, and come back after you. No, I'm going to continue the relationship with you, which may result in my other cheek getting slapped. That's the point of Jesus' teaching here. We do it not as an invitation to get slapped around for no good reason. No, not at all. But as a way of showing love to the offender in order to offer them forgiveness, mercy, and grace. That's what he's after in this teaching. What does the world tell us, though, that we are to do when we've been deeply hurt, offended, dishonored, disrespected, or taken advantage of? What do they tell us to do? The world tells us that? The world tells us to demand our rights, right? Get vengeance if you can, but if you can't, get rid of that person. Get them out of your life. Look what they did to you. You can't have that. They attacked you, and look at you. You might get slapped again. You better move move away from them. Get rid of them. They did it once already, and once was far too much. The reason we do this is because we're obsessed with, as the two men were in the duel, of losing our honor, of being demeaned. And Jesus says, no, my people, the people of my kingdom, will not be known for going ballistic when their rights are trampled on. They won't. That's not the Christian way. What is the Christian way? To stop caring about our having been insulted. 
That's not, the, that's not the issue when it happens. Yeah, you know, when we are insulted, that's important. People shouldn't do it. But the, but the key reason behind it isn't because it was me, right? I don't, and so I don't get all worked up and lose my temper and go vigilante mode on somebody because they dishonored me. The Christian way is not to insist on our rights and our demands, but is to say this, look, what you did was wrong. And I absolutely do want God's divine and perfect justice. But not because I need my honor or my good name restored, but because God is a God of justice, and what you have done was primarily offense against Him. However, because my God is also a God of mercy and grace, I am going to turn the other cheek and do whatever I can to love you and serve you. And so, yes, what you did was absolutely wrong, and you should not have done it. However, when you're ready, I'm ready to forgive you. I'm ready to restore our relationship and to love on you as I ought. That's the heart behind turn the other cheek. Not this legalistic just get beat up because there's some glorious thing about suffering for no good reason. No. There's no honor in becoming a doormat for the sake of being a doormat. There's no redemptive suffering in that. But what there is redemptive value in is suffering for the sake of healing that relationship and pointing that person towards the forgiveness that they can receive in Christ, the same forgiveness you claim to have received. If you're the kind of person who's obsessed with your rights, you know what you're really obsessed with? Your. You. That's what you're obsessed with. And until you have a right view of yourself, you're going to be consumed with yourself. Which, as we know, will one day lead to your eternal, never-ending consuming in a place called hell. But through Christ, everything's different. We are no longer obsessed with self, right? Why? Because we've died to self. It's gone. And what's replaced it? Christ's self. Of course, though, we care about justice, right? We don't just stop caring about justice because that was the original intent behind an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was pointing to God's perfect justice. But we are to care about righteousness for God's sake, not our own. Which means when we have been wronged, we don't demand a duel with that person because they've dishonored us. We couldn't care less about that sort of thing anymore, and why not? Because our identity, our value, our worth, it's not found in the self anymore. That's dead. We're done with that. And so we're no longer obsessed with our rights, with our self-interests, which means it makes no sense then for a Christian to be known for hypersensitivity or defensiveness. Not at all. Because those are characteristics of somebody who is still obsessed with self, with defending their honor to the death if they have to. And so it makes no sense to cling to our stuff, even as Jesus points out, because we use that stuff to serve it. We don't care. We're done with that. And so because of this major change that has happened in us, if someone sues us, Jesus says, you know what the characteristic of that is? Your natural bent, not that you're going to do this every time, depends on the situation, you need wisdom, but the natural bent is you're going to say, whatever, You can have my tunic too if that's what it takes to show you how serious I am about this loving you thing, about pointing you to the forgiveness and the perfect love you can have in Christ. I don't care. This stuff is so not important to me compared to that. And if I I can use this stuff 
For that, I absolutely will. And so if you demand that I go one mile, I'll love you and go two. If you are in serious need, I'm not going to cling to my stuff, but I'm going to help you because I love God and I love you. No, I won't enable your sin. And no, I won't help you avoid the law. But I will do everything in my power to love you as myself, even if you are currently acting as my enemy, which we're going to see next week when we get to the last part of this passage. Jesus says, love your enemies. On December 7, 2017, Dr. Larry Nasser was sentenced to life in prison after having sexually abused over 150 girls over several decades. Who was he? He was the team doctor for the USA Gymnastics team. And he used his position to carry out his despicable acts. And one of the victims, a Christian named Rachel Denholander, eventually came forward to reveal the abuse and went on then to be an influential witness at the trial that led to his conviction. And as a Christian, Rachel understood the justice of God. She understood the wrath of God and the judgment of God. But do you know what else she also understood? What Jesus was teaching on in our passage this morning. And because she understood both of these truths, she was able to read the following letter in court that day. She wrote, The Bible speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And then looking to the court, what did she do? She asked that a strong and severe sentence would be handed down against Nasser's evil. Not because she needed it, but because she wanted God's perfect justice, and she also wanted to see that the weight of that guilt crush Nasser in order to bring about his repentance and salvation and forgiveness, not just between her and him, but between him and God. How could Rachel speak this way? How could she simultaneously ask for justice while also hoping that her abuser would repent and seek forgiveness from God and her? Because she understood Jesus' teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. And because she did, she had died to self and become alive in Christ, who was her new self. And because she had, she was able in that courtroom to offer forgiveness, to turn the other cheek, and offer the same love and forgiveness that she had received in Jesus Christ. That's why. And so too, until you have died to self as Rachel have, have, did, your relationships, you know what they're going to be full of? Feuds and duels to the death. That's what they're going to be. And so we must die to self. How though? That leads us to our third point. To have the attitude of Christ's kingdom, we must understand the letter of the law, the heart of the law, but third, the power needed to live the law. If we're going to die to self, or as John Owen famously put it, to mortify our flesh, how do we do it? 
I have a few suggestions. One, we need to look at this text and seriously examine our lives regularly, often. We need to ask ourselves, do I have a heart attitude that goes berserk when somebody offends me? Or do I have an attitude that's soft and gentle and, well, wanting perfect justice also turns the other cheek out of love for God and mercy and care for that person? And you can't just gloss over that question either. you got to really think about it and examine your life. You have to analyze your behavior. Do you typically respond with self-defense when somebody proverbially slaps you? Are you ready to duel over every little thing when it offends your honor? When you do fail and you do get upset, do you ever stop and ask yourself why you did? Try to examine the motives for why you did? Ask yourself that. Why is this upsetting me so much? Am I concerned for God's justice or am I just annoyed because my pride has been stepped on? Am I zealous for the glory of God or for the glory of self? And if you find yourself regularly responding to face slaps with self-sensitivity, irritability, moodiness, and anger, then I think you found your answer. Secondly, examine your doctrine. In the Garden of Eden, what did Satan appeal to when he tempted Adam and Eve? The self. That's what it was all about. That was at the heart of the temptation. It was subtle, but it was powerful, and Satan knew it. He came to him and he said, God's not being fair to you. He's holding out on you. You have the right to be upset. And they bought it. And since believing that lie, all of humanity has become hyper-obsessed with the self, which has caused endless feuds and duels with one another, which is ultimately out of our rebellion and feud that we have with God. That's the heart of it all. Think about it. When we throw a tizzy, when our self isn't treated with the glory that we think we ought to be treated with, aren't we putting ourselves in the place of God? Aren't we trying to sit upon his throne? Isn't that an act of treasonous rebellion? It absolutely is. And all because we have believed Satan's false doctrine of the self. Right? See, we've, saw, we've seen our glory as greater than God's. Because my glory was diminished, that's the most prime problem. And God says, no, that's not right. It's my glory that matters. Because we have believed Satan's false doctrine of the self, it has resulted in us becoming obsessed with how the world revolves around us instead of how the world is supposed to revolve around God. And when we live this way, obsessed with the self, is it any wonder when we find only misery and unhappiness? Like, look at the depression rates out there in our culture. Can't we say a large part of that has to do with this obsession with self? Right? Like, we've been there. A lot of us have been at this point in our lives where because we are obsessed with self, every little thing just throws us into this tizzy where it's like, oh my goodness, the world's not going how it ought. My glory, my honor is not being on full display and protected and treated as it ought. When we put self in the place of God, not only do we alienate ourselves from one another, but we alienate ourselves from God which obviously is going to lead to misery because God himself is the very source of joy and happiness. 
And so why live for my glory when I can live for God's? Which is the only way to not be a miserable wreck. A man named George Mueller once wrote the following about dying to the self. He said this, There was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval of blame, or even my brethren, of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Until you come to understand the death to self that Mueller is talking about here, you, there's, no, there's no shot. You cannot do what Christ is calling you to do. It's impossible. I said at the start of this passage, I've said it twice now, that this was a tougher one. Do you believe me now? Yes, self-examination is helpful. Yes, doctrinal examination is needed. But hear me when I say this. If that's the only examination you ever do, you're just going to end up walking away from this passage feeling guilty and beat up by it. And that was not Christ's goal, not to leave you in that guilt and defeated, feeling defeated. Who amongst us has the power to deny ourselves? Who amongst us has the power to go two miles when forces force us to go one mile? And that's what Christ was getting at here. He was talking about Roman soldiers who at that time could force citizens, could, could force them to basically become their UPS delivery guys and bring packages, bring items, you know, up to a mile away. And Jesus was saying, which connects to next week, even if it's your enemy, love them. And the Jews absolutely saw the Roman occupation as their enemies. And Jesus says, go two miles. See how shocking this teaching was to this crowd? I wonder they wanted to kill him. Who amongst us has the power to see our positions, our possessions, not as tools to serve the self, but tools to be used for the glory of God and loving others? I don't know anyone. I can't. I have nothing within me that naturally can kill the self. None of us can do this. And so our hearts, when we read this, we cry out, this this is not easy, Jesus. You're asking us to do the impossible. And all that's doing is making me feel more guilty and worthless than I already did. And I don't like this. This is not a positive pep rally talk. I don't like this at all. And so what this leads us to then say, hopefully, how can I do this, Lord? What am I supposed to do? In which, as we read at the start of this service, Jesus' answer is the same answer he gave Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to have this attitude within your heart, you can't muster it up in yourself. I don't care how hard you try, you will not be able to do it. You have to die to self and become alive in Christ's self. And so until we have exchanged our sinful self for Christ's perfect self, we don't have a chance in the world of doing this passage. And so we must go beyond merely examining examining ourselves, examining our doctrine, and finally we must come to examine Christ's perfect denial of his self. That's at the heart of this. 2,000 years ago, Christ came into our world in the ultimate denial of self. Why? Not for himself, but to save us from the curse of self. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes the selflessness of Christ, saying this, Do nothing from selfish ambition 
or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." How do we become the kind of person who turns the other cheek, who gives our cloak willingly, who goes two miles and gives to others in need? How do we do it then? By seeing the great love of Christ, which led him to deny himself for us as he lived a life on this earth where he turned the other cheek for us, where he gave up his cloak that he had in heaven for us. He set it aside. And he went so far for us that he was willing to go well beyond two miles, but even to death on a cross. And when you see that, church, that changes you drastically. That is what you need to see in order to have your old self shed away, which then reveals Christ's self, which is now in you. The new self that is left there, which is finally able to do what Jesus calls us to do here. And when this happens, as Jesus told Nicodemus, you will be born again, which then enables you to do the impossible, not through your own will, not through your own flesh and effort, but through the mighty power of God that is at work within you. Father, I thank you for this passage. I pray that it would have been edifying to your people that it wouldn't leave anybody in guilt and defeatism, but that seeing the perfect standard of your holiness and righteousness would not point them to the self, but realize the self has nothing to offer, and so that they might shed that self and take upon Christ's self as their new identity. Help us not to be people, Lord, who demand our rights, but for the sake of the gospel, are willing to suffer as you suffered, to be slapped disrespectfully as you were. Not for the sake of feeling self-righteous, but for the sake of your righteousness and your holy name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning as we sing our closing song?